Welcome to the Culture of Things podcast with Brendan Rogers. This is a podcast where we talk all things culture, leadership and teamwork across business and sport. To all our loyal listeners, the Culture of Things podcast will now have specific episodes produced for YouTube. To ensure you don't miss out on this exclusive YouTube content, head over to YouTube, click on the subscribe button, and hit the notification bell. Now, let's get into the episode. Hello and welcome to the Culture of Things. This is episode 55. For those on the live stream today on YouTube, I just have to apologize. We've had some slight technical difficulties. We're very, very early in our live streaming journey. So thanks very much for being patient with us. And a little bit of user error as well from my part, because Andrew Bartlow, who's our guest here, mate, I sent you the wrong link a week or so ago, and then I only sent you the correct link last night. My apologies, buddy. Hey, I'm, I'm just glad I'm here and really glad we're doing this. <laughs> Mate, so am I. This is a fantastic topic. So what I want to do, first of all, is just read a bit of your introduction, your bio, just so people get a bit of a flavor for who you are and you've got some credibility around this topic. So let's let people know a bit about that, hey? Sure. All right. So as I said, today I'm talking with Andrew Bartlow. Andrew has 25 years of HR and talent management experience at organizations across a a wide spectrum of sizes, maturity stages, and industries. He leads Series B Consulting, which helps businesses to articulate their people strategy and accelerate their growth while navigating rapid change. He also founded the People Leader Accelerator, which is the preeminent development program for startup HR leaders and is the co-author of Scaling for Success, People Priorities for High Growth Organizations. Busy man, Andrew, busy man. After working with hundreds of startup founders, Andrew has discovered that ego holds back many of them from achieving true success. They often focus on irrelevant things that will make their company look good and forget about the most important foundational work. Founders also want to meet or exceed the expectations of customers, employees, and investors. The challenge happens when they start comparing themselves to companies that are light years ahead of them. Andrew loves to share real stories from the field of working with founders one-on-one to help them overcome ego, prioritize better, and achieve success. Andrew, welcome to the Culture Things podcast. Hey, thank you, Brandon. It, it sounds so good when you uh, when you describe my background. Boy, I appreciate it. Mate, it's a pleasure. And my guest last week, actually, for our first live stream, he actually said, geez, I'd love to meet that guy, <laughs> which I thought was quite quite funny, actually. Now, mate, I, I'm loving the background. How cool is that? Tell us a bit about your, your, your not, not your background we've just been through, I mean, the background that you're sitting in front of. Oh, yeah. Well, hey, I just moved into a new house, been a big uh, remodeling project. And so I moved some of my little girl's art over with me with the the rainbows and the unicorns and the dra- the dinosaurs shooting selfies. And I have a copy of my book up over one shoulder and uh, a bunch of other books that much smarter people wrote uh, in the bookshelf behind me. Mate, well, it looks fantastic. So actually, thanks for the reminder, because I know we had to postpone this episode just a, a couple of weeks because you were in the thick of moving. How has the move gone? At least the section you're in now looks very, very tidy. You know, every box is unpacked. I am. I Are you am serious? Here. Yeah, it was a gut remodel, six months, and uh, on day one, I had every box unpacked. If that tells you something about my my personality and my quirks, uh, you know, take take it for what it's worth. 
mate, it tells me quite a bit straight away, to be honest. <laughs> but it also tells us that if there's a friend that we need to invite over for a barbecue after moving, it's you. Hey, I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> Burgers, beers, I'm in. Now, I've got to remind our listeners and our viewers today as well that we are operating under COVID safe conditions because in New South Wales, in Greater Sydney, we're actually under a lockdown. So through our enormous The Cultural Things budget, we've been able to fly you over to San Francisco so that we're more than 1.5 metres away. (laughs) (laughs) Quite some distance, cross continents. Absolutely. How is life in San Fran at the moment with COVID situation? I'm not aware of, I'm not up to speed with where it's at over there. You know, it it feels like the world has opened back up, at least personally, with uh, restaurants are open again, movie theaters are open again, uh, offices are pretty spotty. That's been a hot topic of conversation around when and if and how workers return to the offices. I, I think we're we're likely to see a lot more hybrid situations for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. We've got a a similar situation here. Lots of office space spare and I think lots of businesses reevaluating what they do longer term with this space. Mate, let's get into our topic about this overcoming ego and winning. You've got quite some experience in this area. There's no doubt about it. The last 20 odd years, 25 years or so. For those of us that aren't clear on, I'm sure there's a lot of people that are clear on it. What what is ego? Yeah, well, I think ego would be the the motivations that, that are driven by self-interest. Ego is trying to look good in front of others. Ego is trying to have your own way. And uh, boy, I'm, I'm in no way saying that we need to lose all of our ego and check it out the door. And, and I've never been accused of lacking my own ego. But it can be a real challenge for leaders of companies for startup founders, as they grow and, and change, it's a pretty consistent challenge that uh, those startup founders run into. And we'll dive into that really, really soon. I just, for my own understanding and for others too, it, ego is a, a pretty common term. We hear this humility or lack of humility. In your books, is that, are they similar or, or actually different, those two terms, ego and a lack of humility? You know, I, I really don't pull apart uh, humility, arrogance, ego. You know, th- this is just more about how you as a leader make great decisions without putting yourself and how you look at the forefront of those decisions. As you become the leader of a company, it's about the success of that business rather than the success of you as an individual. And so the ego is about the I and the id. And companies become about the us and the we and the investors and the employees and the customers. And so that's, uh, that's different when, when you started that company out of your own home office, uh, out of your own bank account, et cetera. Uh, so things really change. Yeah, let's dive into that, that area. The, specifically the founders, you've had a lot of experience there. So why are, I guess you probably just touched on a little bit, but let's dive into that. Why are founders in your experience seen to be more susceptible to this uh, ego factor? Yeah, well, in so many ways, they are the company and the company is them. So it, it becomes a real challenge to try to differentiate the two, uh, especially for the founder. As it grows and evolves, that's something that, you know, it's, it's like, like the letting your children out of the house or the, the birds out of the nest. You know, it, it took such tremendous drive and single-minded purpose to start that company, to attract the capital that funded it, to 
create the vision that brought the early employees and early customers to you. And so, so much of the success of a early stage business has to do with the founder. That's the ego challenge. It's uh, creating a bit of separation between the person and the entity that is this business. With that, again, there, there seems to be some positive attributes around ego. Do you find that founders without ego actually don't succeed as well, at least to start with, to get their company up and going? I in no way want to suggest that complete lack of ego is what we're going for, right? You've got to have that drive. You've got to have that purpose. Uh, the, the animal spirit of the uh, entrepreneur makes it happen. But then being able to create some separation so that you're making decisions as a business person, not just as a person. So there are some risks, there are some traps. We don't want to eliminate the ego, but we do want to harness it. What are some of those traps? Let's focus on the individual founder at this stage. We'll get into how that impacts sort of decisions and others, but what what is the individual traps that you've come across? In my book, I refer to two somewhat lighthearted archetypes, the, the prophet and the mule driver. I did see those terms and they're very interesting. Yeah, yeah. You know what? I'll actually wait to uh, describe those a little bit. So there's the, the, the prophet at a very high level, heavily visionary, light on execution. There's the mule driver who really wants to own and control everything, all the decisions. You know, so th- those are two archetypes I talk about in the book. You know, other ego traps that are really common is this idea of uh, my company, my team, we're special snowflakes. We are so unique that everything's got to be special for us and different. It can't possibly be similar to the way any other company's been through it. Another ego trap is holding on to the past often for too long, whether that be around cultural elements of your business, how decisions are made, you know, how you delegate. Last two ego traps might be looking good to others, looking good specifically to employees and looking good to investors. So each of these areas would love to talk a little bit more about them, can have some risks and some downsides. So just being aware can really help you out as a founder. So maybe first of all, back to the the start of your answer, unpacking that uh, you said mule driver and profit. Again, love the terms, love the terminology. I'll have to bring that into my own language if I can, if you don't mind me taking <laughs> what's well, in the book so anyone can grab it, right? So explain that a little bit more. And you need to see the, the images in the book too. You know, again, lighthearted, but um, yeah, think of the, the prophet as the, the visionary leader, the long white beard on a mountaintop with the staff and who's talking about the big ideas, the incredible visionary that was somehow able to attract capital, attract investment, attract employees through the power of that vision. That's great. That's, that's wonderful. The risk of over-indexing on the profit archetype is that that profit doesn't leave the mountain. I don't think they chiseled their own stone tablet. So it, it's actually executing, getting into the weeds, making decisions, making some of the tough calls that profits are, are quite reticent to do. So I've, I've worked with a, more than one profit before, uh, back in an in-house job, have, uh, won't name any names, won't name any companies on this. We will protect the not-so-innocent. That execution and uh, decision-making really becomes a challenge in that archetype. And that leads to spinning and frustration by their teams. So that's the first one. 
mule driver, you know, it's just about the opposite. Mule drivers tend to, you know, imagine someone sitting on a cart with a number of donkeys chained up and they're cracking the whip. And the mule driver makes the decision where to go, how fast, where they're going. They might treat those donkeys really well. They might feed them well and pet them and sing them songs and we'll have a good, a good time down that road. But the mule driver is the sole decision maker, the sole idea generator. And everyone else on the team is there just to service their decisions. And so that, as you can imagine, can lead to an inability to delegate, lots of bottlenecks, learned helplessness from the team. Those organizations really struggle to scale. They get a lot done in the early stages. The mule drivers tend to have incredible capacity as individual contributors and drivers, but it's, it's hard to scale managers and managers of managers in an organization that, uh, that the founder refuses to delegate. So those are the first two. Yeah, yeah. Look, thanks very much for explaining that a little bit. Let's go to the profit, first of all, because that one seems to be, in my experience, maybe someone who's more common. W- would that be fair to say for a founder? I haven't looked at any studies to see, you know, and, and I should create my own around these archetypes to maybe. Uh, <laughs> are you a prophet? Are you a mule driver? Or are you, you know, door, door number three? That'd actually be kind of fun. But maybe for those on the live stream at the moment, you can just put in the chat if you're a prophet or a mule, a mule driver. We can start the study now. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Yeah, I, I would uh, speculate that a seasoned entrepreneur, somebody that may, may have been in industry, may have reached some level of financial independence, um, they're starting a company later in life. I can imagine there being more people in that category who bring the big ideas and then they want the team to go execute for them. So maybe somebody that stepped out of Fortune 100 environment and had relationships and venture capital to you know go fund this company that they that they have credibility around. What I tend to see, on the other hand, you know, more so in the Valley, I, of course, live in the San Francisco Bay Area, it's a lot more technical founders that are really early in life and really early in career. And those folks tend to be the coders who are hustlers who are trying to come up with the product themselves and hire the people. And so they, they tend towards the mule driver archetype. So out here, I, I'd say it's probably 70, 30, maybe 80, 20, more of a lean towards the mule driver uh, with the technical early life founders. It's really interesting you say that because as you were talking, that's what was going through my head is there are you know, industry-specific, I guess, patterns that are coming up around profit versus mule driving. You just explained that. So what are some of the benefits of these ego-type profits let's say, for the starting points of a business because we're focused on founders. Yeah, the benefits um, of, of having a profit helming your organization is that they are a magnet. They're a magnet for talent. They're a magnet for capital. They come with immediate credibility. So that, that's a huge plus. And so again, it's not you know, the death of your company if you have tendencies towards either one of these poles, but being aware of some of the risks can really help you out. We'll go into the risks as well. What's some of the benefits of the mule driver as a founder? You get shit done. As a mule driver, you know where you're going, you make decisions, and the team will get you there. 
You know every little thing that's happening because you're making those decisions. So in terms of execution and being able to deliver on a vision, whether or not there's the big vision and you are connected to capital and you're able to attract talent or not, you can absolutely execute on on whatever your idea is for your product or service because mostly you're doing it. Tell us about some of the risks then from a profit perspective. Sure. Well, if profits aren't willing to roll their sleeves up every once in a while or robes or get their beard out of the way, um, (laughs) then their organizations can drift. They'll have all this great talent, all this capital ready to deploy. But boy, I've worked with a couple of profits who um, are really concerned about making the wrong call or they don't want to break a tie between two investors or two high profile employees. So they bring the vision. That's their strong suit. But making the tough calls, rolling your sleeves up, knowing the technical elements of your business, profits tend to be on the mountaintop. That's where the risk comes from. If you're not close enough into the details, that has some challenges, particularly in early stage companies. And then obviously the mule driver, let's talk about or share some of the risks in your experience around that. People often don't really love working for mule drivers. You can burn through some people fairly quickly. If folks don't feel empowered, if they're not delegated to, if they recognize that they're along for the ride, some people will be willing to ride with you for a long journey. You're pulling a rocket ship. You have a really successful company and a little bit of equity will be life-changing or you have a great opportunity ahead of you. But it can be, it can be difficult. Yeah, I think about Daniel Pink, uh, his book Drive, which talks about human motivation, autonomy, mastery, and purpose. If you don't have much autonomy, and most of the people that work in mule, driver-driven organizations don't get a lot of autonomy, then you probably won't feel really excited about being part of that team. You've started to move down into the impact of, of people, which is fantastic because that's definitely the, the next level I want to go to. Back to our profit, the white beard robe person that you described before, what are some of the impacts as the organization grows? Hopefully, these founders, are, you know, their businesses are growing and succeeding. So what are some of the impacts on the people that are there in a profit-founded organization? Yeah, in a, in a profit founded organization, again, you get the talent, you get the funding, you get the investors, you have the great ideas, you're able to attract publicity and press. Those are the benefits. You know what a good pitch looks like to your board and your investors. Tend to be masters of the pitch deck, wonderful salespeople of ideas and investment dollars. And those those are all positives. And what that can do for an organization is it can often extend a financial lifeline if it takes longer for that organization to figure out what the heck it's actually doing. It can also be really risky for an investor where, hey, here's somebody that appears to have a lot of credibility and they're telling us, wait, 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 or the product roadmap is, is, str- is struggling or we're pivoting. This person has so much credibility that you're not willing to pull the plug. So you can gather up a lot of dollars and a lot of people in the wake of a profit that may not end up ever being executed on or ever being realized. Mm, which is a very concerning place to be, I suppose, as your business grows. Like, what, what's the outcome from a customer level when that sort of activity happens? Because it's very common for us to maybe surround ourse- ourselves with like-minded people. They feel right. 
uh, all of those things that we're attracted to come out. So what is the impact from a customer delivery perspective? Oh, profits tend to to promise a lot. They tend to sell the vision, sell the future. And if you think about how many times you've dealt with a a SaaS company or some technology company that says, yes, we will get right to that. Yes, we've already thought of that. And boy, that'll be coming out in our next release. Big promises. So as a customer, you'll hear all of the things that you want to hear, but do you actually receive what's been promised to you? That's the challenge. I'm encouraging people to be aware of some of these archetypes so they don't stray too far afield and become that archetype. It just sent me on a flashback many, many years ago when I was involved in a a global system implementation rollout, and this was in the review stage. We actually had probably one of those profit-type founders of a business who we'd, we'd flown in to do the presentation, and he had his offsider there. And literally, they were doing coding through this meeting as you know input was had by the team and stuff i'm thinking wow that's unbelievable (laughs) i mean fantastic they were making changes very quick but you know so talk about promises on the go yeah big promises come with profits so the impact on people and the mule driver and again you, you touched on it but how does some of that impact through the customer side i i'd imagine there's a a lot of positives from a customer perspective from a for a mule driver Yeah, customer comes first, delivery happens, but it's really hard on the team. It's really hard on the internal team. It's not at all a bad thing to be a customer of a mule driver driven company. But yeah, customers customers get what they're promised because those promises end up being very realistic and execution is the focus. Where there could be a gap or where there could be a risk is if attrition and turnover on the team which tends to happen at a much higher rate, employee turnover, if that sets back a product roadmap or if that has customer impacts, if people just get burnt out and don't enjoy working in that internal mule driver atmosphere, that can even exacerbate the pressure on the remaining employees. So it can really result in a pinch that has the potential of leaving customers in the lurch. So if I'm just going to sum this up a little bit in that the, the conversation we've had today. If I was thinking about a profit type leader in a founder type organization, then potentially if what you're saying, or if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly, there's probably a really great feel internally in the organization that people are quite inspired by that sort of profit type leader. But maybe there's some disgruntlement amongst customers in over-promising and under, under-delivering potentially. Whereas the mule driver, it may be that they've got some really fantastically happy customers and getting reviews and their business is growing. But internally, it's like people on the rat wheel and and they're probably not liking as much the environment that they're in. Is that a fair assessment? Well said, really well said. If the two poles are visionary and execution or executionally oriented, I think you really, as a leader, you want to capture some elements of both, but learn to reside in the Goldilocks zone in the middle there. So great again. Let, let's go, you know, whether it's the Goldilocks zone or whatever, but ha- I want to talk a little bit about you and, and your experience and you're working with these types of founders. Hence, you've been able to write a book and co-author a book about it. How do you have these sorts of conversations when you're starting to work with 
either one of these founders and and take them through a process so that they get some awareness because my belief is you've got to have some awareness first before you can actually deal with situations. Unpack that a little bit for us, mate. I usually get involved as a as a result of the symptom of one or more of these issues. <laughs> why why is that so common for all of us? <laughs> <laughs> right? It's it's less about, you know, you know, CEO founders don't seek me out and say, my ego's too big. Fix me. Boy, I need an executive <laughs> coach because I'm uh, you know, I'm a I'm a prophet that can't execute. That has never once happened. Well, let me say after this interview and they watch it and they're thinking of founding a company, that will start to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready for those. I'm ready for those <laughs> conversations. What tends to happen more so is that a team will talk to me about role clarity. We're bumping up against each other. We're trying to figure out who owns what. We're not getting as much done as we should, and it's really frustrating. That's a key word for me. It's really frustrating. And if the team is struggling with this, that is often driven by lack of a clear decision maker. And maybe that's the founder CEO. Maybe that's the founder CEO making the decisions to decide who will make decisions. That's okay too. Maybe they're no longer running the company. Maybe they're an executive chair of the firm at that point, but they're still heavily involved. That happens a lot. So it's that frustration where the team is trying to figure out who does what that is typically indicative of a profit situation. Mule drivers don't look to the outside for help very often. But when they do, it might be more oriented around culture. The culture's changing. How do we go back to the way things were when we were small? And this goes unsaid, but it's implied. And I knew what everyone was doing. And I want to monitor and manage the work and we're growing and scaling and, and my leaders are not succeeding. Well, what often happens in those cases is those leaders aren't set up with the empowerment to be successful. They're being second-guessed by their mule driver leader. So that ends up being you know, some of the underlying issue around the symptoms that I'm, that I'm often tapped to try to help with. So how are you dealing with those symptoms? How do you help move people through this process? It depends. Each situation has its own interesting elements to it. And you know, first, just talking to the, the team and trying to get a handle as clearly on what their current context is. And, and that's, a, that's a concept I don't think we talked about in the, in the preview and the show notes. Context matters way more than content. There's no such thing as the right answer. Like I'm not gonna try to sell somebody on, oh, just follow this checklist and, or do this survey and you'll know whether you're a mule driver or profit and if you are, then do these three things. It's not that easy. I wish it were that easy. Everybody else wishes it were that easy. But it is really necessary if you're looking for a good solution to understand who the players are, what the needs are. I do lots of one-on-one -on -one interviews, but most of it over video nowadays. I have a couple of surveys. I, I like Patrick Lencioni's uh, five dysfunctions of a team stuff. I do some competency stuff. Yeah, a couple of, couple of sur light surveys, but mostly it's talking to people and asking open-ended questions. What's working well? What could be working better? What's your leader doing that's helping? What's your leader doing that, that's hurting? And you gather that up from enough, uh, from enough people and you start to see some themes. And that usually leads you down the path of role clarity, delegation, communication. But every situation has its own, has its own eccentricities. Our interview will continue after this. 
An expression of gratitude or reciprocity, no matter how large or small, is an important part of a healthy culture and relationships. Our friends at Jangler have a great app that allows you to send a gift card with either a personal video, voice message, or funny gif. You can send it right away or schedule to send on the perfect day and time. So it can be something you set and forget. It's perfect for clients, employees, birthdays, and any celebration where you can't be there in person. It's quick, easy to send, and you can spend instantly in-store or online when you receive a card. Check it out at www.jangler.com.au. That's www.jangler.com.au. Before I push you on a story, again, you said at the, the start of the interview, let's not you know, throw people under the bus and names and stuff, but I, I do want you to refer back to any story you've got, maybe a story of success. Let's keep this uh, really positive. But one of the things that through the book and uh, in our notes about avoiding the founder ego traps, there was a point there around RACI, RACI, and six questions for clarity. Can you just go into that as, a, as an area? Yeah, this is one of the uh, one of the tools that can be really helpful in addressing a profit-like scenario. So let's say you're in an organization where you're full of bright people, lots of stuff to do, everybody's working on stuff really hard, you're working hard, but alignment is something that you're lacking on. Maybe you have lots of meetings and lots of discussions, but they never really seem to get finalized. And it's unclear whether a decision's made or whether you actually need 100% consensus. So in situations like that, there's a tool called a RACI, and, and, it, and it stands for R is responsible, A is accountable, C is consulted, and I is informed. And there are a bunch of, you know, it's a business school tool, and there are lots of different ways, you, you know, different people use different definitions for some of those uh, acronym letters. And I've heard of an ARCHI and there's a like, you know, you could, you could have whatever. The point is that you're being clear about who does what, who makes decisions, who's involved. So whatever sort of acronym you use for that, you should have some sort of simple, lightweight way of making that clear to everybody. Like, what's your decision-making process? In the absence of that, particularly in profit-driven or profit-led organizations, the team drifts. So you, you need that clarity to get stuff done. So the, the RACI is one of, my, one of my favorites. You tend to see a big need for that in a, in a creative environment, an environment where relationships win out over execution. RACIs are great. The six questions for clarity, those come from Patrick Lencioni, author of Five Dysfunctions of a Team, The Advantage, a b- bunch of great business books. And and part of the reason I love them so much is that they're easily consumable. They're easily understood. I frankly haven't seen a great management science tie-in, but they're so dang practical and easy to work with. I I just lean on it pretty heavily. And the six questions for clarity, again, you you could make it four, you could make it eight, whatever it is. The idea is getting aligned with your team and making it clear and coming to a conclusion you know, who are we? How do we behave? What do we do? What's our purpose? Who must do what? You know, there, there are different questions and he's, he's had a couple of variations of those, but it's all about clarity. And that's what profit-driven organizations often lack is that clarity in alignment, in purpose, 
in what's most important right now. And that's so valuable in a high growth organization where there's always too much to do and everything could always be better. Yeah, mate, it's, it's so much of what you're saying. I, I am a, a massive supporter of Lencioni and, and use a lot of his stuff as well. And and Racy, you're a little bit kinder. You said Arky, I think. We we referred to it in Australia as Arcee. We just felt that that had a nicer ring to it and people would remember it. <laughs> yeah, all right. All right, I'm I'm going there. Go Arcee, mate. Go Arcee. <laughs> But definitely the way to go. People love it. <laughs> they may not like the uh, the process around developing it and stuff, but at least the name rings a bell and they're like, oh, great, this doesn't sound too boring. I like it. I saw some version of it with uh, with Lord of the Rings characters and, you know, Frodo was responsible and Sam was, I forget exactly, and, and Gandalf, you know, was the approver. I, so it, it was a really fun way to explain uh, Racy. Oh, that's a classic. That's a classic. Let's go back to your story. I want you to cast your mind back, and hopefully, you've been doing that whilst you've been answering the question. That tell us the story of success that you, I guess, you're most proud of of supporting, you know, one of these leaders, whether it's profit mule driven to, you know, to really raise the awareness and come out the other side and and really make sure they're getting the right people around them at the right time in the growth of their business to take them to the next level. Well, we've been talking about profit a lot, so I could switch over to the mule driver uh, story. And great option. Yeah, yeah. So again, a company and leader to, to never be named, but you know who you are. Uh, if you're listening. <laughs> and we'll put it in the show notes for everyone. <laughs> uh, not, not a chance. Not a chance. <laughs> yeah. So I, I worked uh, closely with a founder leader who was very much an archetypal mule driver high need for control, incredible drive, brilliant, and just got shit done. Don't know when he slept, but got shit done and built a very, very successful business that had uh, you know tremendous exit, tremendous outcome for, for him and many other people. But he continually struggled with delegating, empowering, giving enough direction, and then letting the team go. And so th- this, was, this was a journey of, of quite some time in terms of both working with him and working with the leadership team to interpret what was going on. And often just naming, like, hey, our leader, we know how he's wired. We know that he needs to control and he's a driver and that doesn't mean he's a bad guy. So once you can wrap your mind around like that, this person might actually mean well and probably does mean well. They're not trying to put you on the spot. They're not threatening your you know, livelihood and your family's mortgage and your, your kid's school. They just really, really want this company to be successful and they really want to be successful and they want to keep their promises. And that keeping their promises, I, I feel like that's a key factor with a lot of the mule driver motivation. Like they, they just really want to deliver. They want to get to that destination and might, might whip, the, whip the mules from time to time, even though they really mean well. So, you know, it was, it was a, a regular conversation. And in this environment, I was in-house. And so, you know, the, this leader was my manager. And so you've got to be particularly sensitive when you're telling your manager that they're kind of an asshole. So you more so, I spent my time working with my peers, the executives, trying to help them understand the context. Like, he's not really a bad guy. This is just how he's made up. And we can work with this. And so I, I think that being able to separate myself enough 
mentally from that situation prepared me to be that sort of advisor to my peers. And it's hard to do that. You can't expect every HR leader inside a company that has a really executionally oriented leader uh, to be able to step enough outside of themselves and and take a risk and just acknowledge like, hey, yeah, this is kind of icky behavior, but we're going to be okay and we can do this together. Let's talk about a tool or, or tools that you may like to use in that process because there's definitely the the thing around genuine conversations, the ability to have genuine conversations. Absolutely. Is there any tool or tools that you would recommend to help founders and teams create that environment to get to know each other a little bit more and, and enable to to enable those sort of conversations to happen? Yeah. Yeah. There, there are a thousand styles and approaches, tools from the predictive index to the Myers-Briggs type indicator to there's a disk profile, there's a emergenetics there. Yeah, I, I've taken probably 20 of these things and, and seen 25 more. The tool doesn't matter. If you can get your yourself and your team into a place where you can talk about styles, approaches, and intentions. And if you're a mule driver, if you can open up a little bit and be able to acknowledge just how much you care and help people see you as a person and a human, then they'll give you a lot more latitude. And it might soften you up a little bit in the process too. Mate, I have to say, I love how you say the tool doesn't matter because I am so with you on that. It doesn't matter what the tool is. It's the ability to have the conversation or, or those tools can help facilitate conversation. So well said, mate. I think too many times we as leaders or people trying to help leaders maybe want to jump to a tool because there's some safeness in that rather than you know, using it to facilitate conversation. Yeah, I have, I have a strong and somewhat controversial professional opinion about these psychometric tools. Like I, I, I think they're just, they're more dangerous than they are useful. You know, at, at best, it's kind of a waste of time if you're using it for anything other than you know, a, a lively discussion. When do they become dangerous? When you make decisions based off of them. Boy, I can't tell you how many times I, I've uh, had, had on my calendar uh, some work time to write a blog about selection processes. If you want to use any one of these survey instruments for hiring, just stop, please. Like time out, don't do that. And all the people that are trying to sell you these tools will explain why it works. Please. I'll get a blog out. I'll give you more detail about this later. <laughs> but yeah, I'm a, I'm a master's degree industrial organizational psychologist. I'm qualified to administer and interpret all of these various psychometric tools. I've done it professionally for 25-ish years. And, and for, for hiring purposes, you're just not going to get it zeroed in on your population at your company in your context right now to make it relevant enough that it actually helps. Yes, maybe you can get some blanket salesperson skills survey. Is that going to be the right fit for you right now? Just stop searching for the silver bullet and it's a grind. You got to talk to people. You got to get to know them. You got to do the interviews, which are not that effective overall. Yeah, that's some of the work that I do, though. I, I do some executive assessment to help uh, PE and VC firms figure out who's more likely to be a more successful hire. So in some ways, I'm a professional interviewer. You can't expect that, you know, startup, you know, engineering leads will be super skilled. 
at that. So you do your best, but don't, don't go to the shortcut of a survey instrument and expect that that'll tell you who to hire for quote culture fit. Yeah, mate, I think we're on a a very similar page there as well. Let's talk about this word trust. We can link it back to genuine conversations. I'd love for you to throw an angle around how important trust is or particularly developing trust and the founder having trust in their team. And maybe it's around the mule driver, I'm thinking a bit more, because they're a driver, they probably know a lot about what's happening in the business and the detail. What's the importance of them trusting others in growing their business? It's really hard to scale. It's really hard to get things done through others if you don't have some level of trust as a leader. You can inspect what you expect. You can trust but verify. But at a, at a certain point, once your company gets, you know, call it 20, if you're willing to not sleep, it's probably 20 people where you as a single founder can have a pretty good idea of what every person's working on all the time. But once it gets much, much past that, and, and you can talk about, um, you know, certain sizes of populations that break, break down communication barriers and, um, you know, at about 150 people, you can't even really socially know a group larger than that. Dunbar's number. Dunbar's number is, you know, 100, 150 people. So if you're the CEO, you might see their, their name on a spreadsheet someplace, but you don't like really know something about these people or what they're working on on a daily basis. So if you're going to scale, you have to have some measure of trust. Set up the processes, set up the structure to allow the verify, trust but verify, to to allow you to inspect. But if you don't have trust, you'll never be able to grow enough that other people can actually do stuff. Otherwise, you become your own mule at that point. You're the only one pulling your cart if nobody else can do the work. How do you help and how do you have conversations with founders and help them realize that it's actually okay that people in the organization will never love the business as much as you do? You know, founders treat it as their, you know, this is their baby, this is their child, they want to, they love it, they want to grow it, they want to nurture it and stuff. But, you know, that's a that's a conversation that I've had with founders before and it's a, it's a really difficult thing to get them into action with. You know, they can sit there and nod their head and acknowledge and stuff like that. But is there anything, any tricks or tools that you have that may help that conversation flow into some definite action on the ground, not just an acknowledgement? I think there's so much of this rooted in getting to know people and having conversations. And so if you can encourage that leader, that founder to have real conversations with people that aren't them. When I, when I worked at big, uh, at, at giant organizations where people were well-paid and they were deep in their career and, and all of that, we used to refer to that as not everybody has a boat, right? If you're the senior <laughs> VP of whatever, really? you interact with mostly- really? You don't have a boat? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. So if you're the senior VP of whatever and you interact with mostly senior VPs or the people on your team that are you know, still well-paid and deep in their career and whatever, you have a different motivations, you have a different lifestyle, you have, I mean, you're, you're more similar in terms of motivations and lifestyle. But then when you think about a small company where you're the CEO and you know, frontline- receptionist or your QA analyst who's in the country on a J1 visa, what are their motivations? It's, it's probably less like your own. 
as, as a founder and CEO. So the more that you can encourage some of that friction, some of that interpersonal friction, the more those leaders will understand where other people are coming from. And to your point, you can point it out as much as much as you want, and it's less likely to stick unless they make a you know, real human connection at some point. Surveys won't do it. Yeah, they're not all they're cracked up to be, are they? Yeah. Although you're talking about people making money, surveys do make some consultants a hell of a lot of money over time. Doesn't it actually necessarily bring the result that the client's looking for? Yeah. It sounds like you're talking me into starting a survey business. <laughs> Well, you're experienced enough in it, mate, but uh, it's always interesting those that get training or, or really understand this stuff inside out that, you know, sometimes eventually they realize that it's not, not that it's not cracked up to what it's be, but people can start to misuse tools and things like that, which, uh, or tools aren't always uh, used for what they're intended to be used for. That's fair. Uh, one, one of my favorite conversations in the People Leader Accelerator, uh, the, the development program for HR leaders was don't fall in love with forks. The idea there was, if you're trying to eat a bowl of soup, a fork's not the right tool for you. <laughs> so I really like Culture Amp. It's the best thing since sliced bread. Well, great, use Culture Amp, but when and why and where? And understand the problem that you're trying to solve before you go implement the tool or technology or process or whatever. So I come back to there's no such thing as a best practice. There's what's best for you right now. And that doesn't necessarily translate from company to company. Mate, great analogy. And unfortunately, the only thing I was thinking about then was I wish my son, who's actually 18, would fall in love with his fork and stop using his bloody hands to eat his <laughs> dinner. <laughs> I don't care if he falls in love with the fork, the spoon, the knife, whatever, just use some utensils. <laughs> we, had a, we had a great meme image. It was a, it was like a cartoon fork with a big like red circle and an X through it. I, uh, we got to do one of those in the show notes. I think you might need to get your daughter to draw that so you can put it up behind you as well. I like it. My, my older one is coloring inside the lines now, so that we've got a shot at it. How old are your daughters? I should have asked earlier. Oh, this, this summer they turned six and eight. Oh, great ages. Yeah, they're a lot of fun. Absolutely, mate. Well, congratulations on that. Profit and mule driver. Again, we've spoken a, a bit about each. What I'd like you to do, though, is... Let's go back to the profit. If you could give a profit type founder or somebody who thinks that they're maybe a little bit more profit founder inclined, some just one piece of advice that can help them on their journey of business and growing and scaling, what would that advice be? The most common issue that the profits have is around bringing clarity to their team, is around making decisions. So I would generally encourage that, that profit to identify today, what are the three most important things at your company? Stop at three. Don't outsource that. Don't delegate that to somebody else. So many profits go hire a COO to make decisions for them, but then, they, but then the COO doesn't actually get to make the decision. So decide today, what are the three most important things for your company and tell everybody, make it really clear. Those profit organizations tend to just drift and everything's important and nobody's sure who's doing what. A racy would be wonderful. An org chart would be a cherry on top. But start with what are the three most important things for your company and commit to it. 
Yeah, great advice. And I probably should add, and you can tell me if this is correct, that it's not the three most important things like this hour or this day. It's for an extended period of time. Would that be right? Bingo. Bingo. <laughs> so maybe that's over the next year. Maybe that's over the next quarter. Chances are it's in your beautifully drawn up investor pitch deck. So just <laughs> take it out of there, but make sure that everybody's really clear what those important things are. And then and then start to line up some resources to go deliver against it. But you can't deliver unless you're really clear on what the what that short list of things to do is. Conversely, our mule driver, what would be that bit of advice that you want to give that person who's more inclined to be the mule driver to help them? Yeah, that's a, that's a tougher one, frankly. I might go back to talk to your people, make sure that you're having real human, authentic conversations with people. If you can show that you're human to your team, they'll give you a lot more latitude and you'll get to know them better. And by the way, you'll get to know what they're working on, which you want to do anyway, through your natural tendencies. Another idea, and this is a hard one, would be to find somebody that can call you on your own bullshit. Maybe you're lucky enough to have that in a spouse or a significant other. Maybe you have an investor that can do that with you. Not usually. Investors don't do that. VC investors tend to bring money and roses, not critical pushback. It's hard to find that in-house. It's hard to hire an HR person or a a COO when their paycheck is dependent on you to like really call you out. So that probably has to be a third party. So find that sort of third party that you will allow to call you on your bullshit. And and that'll help you with your awareness around it. Have you in your HR world experience, you spent a lot of time there, have you had that sort of situation where you've, I guess you've been that person that has needed to call you on your bullshit for want of a better word? Yeah, I, you know, I try to be kind about it, right? It's <laughs> it's not about embarrassing anybody and you don't do, you know, something in, in person, but I mean, you don't do something in front of a big group. Yeah, I've, I, heck, I did that twice today with, with leaders. And, and it's about calling out, like, do you think that this approach is the best approach to get to your goal? Like you said that you want to accomplish this. You've said that you want to empower this team. Do you think that by you stepping in and getting involved in that discussion, that that will be the result? And so you're just holding up a mirror. And that, you know, in this particular <laughs> discussion, the leader said, nope, you're right. I don't need to be part of that. What was the other one today? There were some interpersonal uh, dynamics going on, always are, right? And in this case, I just, I just encourage, how about you have a, a drink? With this person, you know, we we can see each other in person nowadays out in the states. So why don't you get together and just you know talk about this and see see where their heads at? And you could just see the the energy and angst kind of just seep away. Like oh yeah, like I don't need to think about how to construct the the sharp email to convey all the feelings that I'm having. I can just like talk to this person. So that that's what it looks like in practice. So, you know, you can, uh, I'm probably throwing around a little bit of bravado, like call them on their bullshit. No, you can be direct and you can still be polite and you can hold up the mirror and say, hey, is this going to get you to where you want to go? Yeah, I think it's Brene Brown that sort of made famous that sort of kind conversation, right? So not not about being nice, but being kind. And that's sort of, you know, really calling people on stuff because you care enough. And the other thing I think by the sounds of it, You've got, again, two daughters and probably a lovely wife, and I've got a, a lovely family as well that 
call me and they probably call you on your own bullshit quite a bit. Is that right? You know, I could uh, handle a little less calling on my own bullshit. <laughs> They're getting to the stage of knocking our confidence, aren't they? <laughs> That's They're knocking That's our ego. Yeah, by being called a little less. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, yeah. yeah I, I know, mate. I know. I, I, I've got some really great friends around me that help boost me up a bit because when I go home, I'm getting getting the ego knocked all the time. <laughs> right, right. Like professionally, oh, yeah, you know, I, I, I do this stuff, and at home, you're just, you're just another guy. You're just the, you know, the guy that washes the socks. Well, I tell you what. It, again, our last, our very first live stream last week, I had a. And you can't see it in here, but I had a bone colored pair of pants on and I rang my mum and said, oh, what did you think of the live stream or whatever? And and she's like, yeah, it was really good. The interview went well and stuff. I didn't like your pants though. <laughs> like, well, okay, thanks for the feedback. <laughs> Glad I could work on that, mom. Well, I can't, I can't see what color pants you're wearing now. You're, you're at the, at the tour shot. I've got jeans on, mate. So I even, it played on my mind. And even though I figured that people wouldn't see my pants today, I still changed them. <laughs> she's having an impact on you i'm almost 46 years of age and my mum's still getting in my head but it never stops it never stops mum dad if you're watching i love you guys you know that. We, yeah we love you <laughs> mom me too i have to say too it's my it's actually my today's the second of july it's actually my sister's 50th birthday so once again happy birthday to my sister kylie as well i haven't spoken to her for quite a long time but uh happy birthday i do love you as well that's great that's sweet Let's, uh, yeah, sorry, thanks for indulging me with that. Mate, what has been the greatest impact in your own leadership journey? If you'd like to share that for us, that'd be fantastic. Authentically and vulnerably starting my own business. I am truly walking in the shoes of the founders that I advise because I founded three of my own businesses and it is eye opening and it is something that you can understand it to an extent, but you can't live it until you've, until you've lived it. Some of the pressures and stresses and ego and what you do professionally reflects directly on who you are as a person. And so I, I think that has been the most significant part of my leadership journey is walking in the shoes of the people that I hope to support, help, and advise. Oh, that's a, a great example of, of impact. And yeah, I can certainly second that in my own journey of, of starting my own consulting business when I left the corporate organization. And it's a challenge. It's a great challenge that we like to take up. And it's certainly, if we don't want to grow every day, we have no choice. We have to grow and develop. Otherwise, we will go out of business very, very quickly, won't we? Yeah, absolutely. I have my mule driver tendencies, right? I'm thinking about Hey, should I should I hire somebody to do marketing and uh, somebody else to do operations for me? And how do I want to organize that? How am I going to make sure they do it right? How you know? How am I going to have my opportunity to see every little thing? Well, why am I hiring anybody at all then? Right? These are the challenges that the that the founders and leaders really have because it's your own money, it's your own reputation, and being able to more than empathize, but really live the experience that the people that you're trying to help have lived that's been just super eye-opening for me yeah well said mate you're uh, authentically living the journey every day as you said for the with those people that you're you're helping as well so yeah putting yourself in their shoes great stuff thanks
Mate, we're going to bring this interview to an end. I've been so looking forward to this conversation. For me, it hasn't disappointed as well. I wasn't expecting you to disappoint, so don't worry there. Fantastic. You know, the topic is so relevant. All of us have challenges with our own ego. I think for me, it's always around intent. You know, I think you said it really nicely near the top of the show that we still need some ego. We've got to be able to drive ourselves and, and push things forward and whatever. But probably when we're using that ego to override decisions and we're talking more about benefiting us rather than benefiting others, that's when they can have a real detrimental impact, particularly when you're growing a company. So, mate, fantastic. Really appreciate your patience with us as we we sort of dropped out there but this conversation mate um, well done on your own journey and what you're doing through series b consulting uh, and the people accelerator that you're doing and the book mate i can it's behind you there scaling for success we'll put that in the show notes it's up on the screen at the moment congratulations well done and i look forward to continuing our relationship mate fantastic to uh, have connected through linkedin really appreciate it brendan thank you absolute pleasure mate and good luck with the uh, the drawing that you're going to be getting your daughter to do? Inside the lines. I'll, I'll watch her. <laughs> yeah. Well done, buddy. It's a great job. Thanks. If you're a leader in a startup organization, you have to get a copy of the book Andrew co-authored. Scaling for Success people priorities for high growth organizations could easily become your bible for all things people related as you scale. Andrew has almost 25 years experience in organizational effectiveness. He's been involved in many mergers and acquisitions, scale-ups and IPOs. He's a man who knows what he's talking about. These were my three key takeaways from my conversation with Andrew. My first key takeaway, leaders get clarity on the problem they're trying to solve. I love the phrase Andrew used, don't fall in love with forks, meaning don't jump to your favorite solution when you aren't clear on the problem. Leaders must always answer the question, what problem are we trying to solve? Only when you take the time to understand the problem can you implement the best solution. My second key takeaway, self-awareness is king. You may be a prophet or a mule driver or maybe even a special snowflake. Your style doesn't matter. What matters is your awareness of the behaviours around your style. If you have self-awareness, you'll know your strengths and weaknesses and be able to bring in people to compliment you. My third key takeaway, leaders value human connection. Getting to know your team as real people is critical. Using leadership, team or behavioural tools can support this by facilitating conversations. Using them for anything other than this is fraught with danger. Nothing replaces the value of human connection. So in summary, my three key takeaways were, leaders get clarity on the problem they're trying to solve. Self-awareness is king and leaders value human connection. If you want to talk culture, leadership or teamwork or have any questions or feedback about the episode, leave me a comment on the socials or you can leave me a voice message at thecultureofthings.com. Thanks for joining me, and remember, the best outcome is on the other side of a genuine conversation. Thank you for listening to the Culture of Things podcast with Brendan Rogers. Please visit brendanrogers.com.au to access the show notes. If you love the Culture of Things podcast, please subscribe, rate, and give a review on Apple Podcasts. 
And remember, a healthy culture is your competitive advantage.